This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Yeah, okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time set aside to gather around your word. Father, we pray that you would honor us by your presence and bless us by your spirit, that he may guide our understanding and lead us into all truth, Lord, as you promised. We pray a particular blessing on Aaron as he shares his thoughts, Lord, and on, on our group together, that we may appreciate the wisdom that you have put in each other. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so welcome everybody to our evening study at uh, Christchurch, Jerusalem, where we are wrestling with the last words of Moses. That is uh, Moses' uh, final speech, which happens to be the longest uh, monologue in the entire Bible, as he sets forth uh, a commentary on the Torah as he is preparing the children of Israel to enter the land of Canaan and set up uh, the kingdom of heaven on earth, that is the kingdom that would reflect the character of God to the local people um, around him. Now, last week, so our tradition is that we go over last week's uh, summary, which I put together. We were wrestling with the, the issue of kingship in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. So here's a summary of our discussion. As Winston Churchill once said of democracy, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. And as Mark Twain would quip, if voting made any difference, they wouldn't let us do it. Suffice to state that the Bible is not democratic. Moses has not been freely elected, and his successor, Joshua, will not be subject to a mandate from the masses. How then should the people of God set up governance in the just, compassionate, and righteous society required by God? as a light to the nations? And the answer, with a king. Moses is speaking prophetically here as the Israelites will not seek a king for another 400 years. Now, this short passage in Sefer Devarim, Deuteronomy, presents the only instructions for monarchy in the entire Bible. And the form Moses presents is of a limited kingship. The king of Israel will not be like nor behave like the kings of other nations. The first condition for a king is that he is chosen by God and to be an Israelite in ethnicity. Kings are therefore, in a sense, appointed by God and thus have a claim to the divine right of kings. This uh, was a notion that said that because kings were chosen by God, they couldn't be uh, uh, overseen by another earthly power. However, their temporal power remains tempered by Moses. Being God's choice does not inherently guarantee good governance. For an example, Saul and Jeroboam. 
In limiting the kingship, Moses restricts the size of the army of the king that he may wield. Israelite kings will not be expansionist. They're not going to have big armies. They're not going to take over the world. There is a particular command not to return to Egypt, either to procure weapons or for any other reason. Israel has come out of slavery in pagan culture and must never be enticed to return to it. The witness of God through his people is at stake. The king is limited in the number of political marriages and wives that he may have. And we had a vibrant discussion regarding marriage and the number of wives that are allowed in the Bible without any resolution. Suffice to say that regardless of the lack of a biblical mandate on wives, the current laws applying to where we live restrict us all to one. So it actually becomes a moot point. The danger of political marriages and foreign wives to an Israelite king uh, is the enticement to idolatry, which is the unfortunate end of Solomon. Kings must have a sense of humility and not consider themselves above the people that they rule. Heroes of God are always humble. Moses also limits the accrued wealth of the monarchy. Money is the root of all evil, and kings appointed by God will avoid this trap. Now, these are things that the king cannot do, known as the negative commands. Whenever you have the 613 commands that are in the Bible, you have positive commands, things you can do, and negative commands, things you can't do. So there were a series of things the king couldn't do. The only positive command that is the thing that the king will do the only positive command given to a king is the command to write for himself the Torah. Again, we see the, liter the literate culture of the Israelites. Even the king is also a scribe. Now, he is to write, as it says, this Torah, and there is a debate as to what he actually writes. Does he write the whole five books or just a copy of Deuteronomy? because the Hebrew calls for him to write the Mishnah Torah, which can be uh, associated solely with the last words of Moses, which is exactly what the Septuagint translators interpreted the text to mean. So it might be nice, and I always like to think that they wrote out the whole five books. However, the text actually seems to imply that maybe they only wrote out the one, and this also adds to the explanation of why Sefer Devarim, Deuteronomy, was the most popular book in the Second Temple period. Uh, we, um, apart from Esther, this is the most common copy we find and, uh, and is the most quoted book in the New Testament, and Esther isn't quoted at all. The king, uh, the king does write out his copy. He does so in the presence of the Levites and the priests. We noted last week that the judiciary is not under the scope of influence of the monarchy. Rather, it is under the purview of the clergy. Moses decrees a separation of powers. So the courts will be with the priests and, uh, the, and the executive is with the monarch. 
the word of God is to be the constant companion of the king. He is to revere and fear the Lord and to read daily the word of God. Reading the Bible reduces the opportunity to sin. God wants his word to be on the hearts of the rulers. Thus, we see once again that there is no separation of church and state. So we have had this discussion before. Obedience in any of its forms brings a blessing. For the monarch, the obedience of uh, the blessing of obedience is dynasty. God says, if you obey me, you're going to live long and you're going to have a successful dynasty, which also seems to be in the mind of God. Why? Because he creates the house of David. Okay, so that's a summary of our discussion from last week where we looked at the uh, role of the coming king that would be over Israel. And so now we leap into... Uh, Deuteronomy 18. So um, I'll read it. Um, I get to read it now from my little ESP. Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he has promised them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people. From those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain or your wine or of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall also give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons, for all time. And if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all of Israel where he lives, and he may come when he desires, to the place that the Lord will choose, the ministers in the name of the Lord and ministers in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portions to eat, besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony. And when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, and anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to, to, to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this among you from your brothers. It is to him you should, sorry, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. 
Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And whoever will not listen to his words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord has been not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. All right. So based on an initial reading, there, we're looking at uh, the provision of priests, Levites, and, um, and uh, the, uh, some detestable practices that we're not allowed to have and the role of prophets within our community. Is there anything there that stands out? Is there anything there that you hadn't noticed before? Or is there anything that you always notice whenever you read this chapter? Is there anything there that jumps out? Well, verse 15 is always noticeable, but I'm sure we'll come to that. That's a highlight of this chapter. It but is. I'm curious, was the stipulation of what of the priest's portion of the sacrifice being the shoulder, the two cheeks, and the stomach? That's it's slightly random. But, um, it does appear that way. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. And, and of course, um, I had to figure out what they actually meant by the cheeks. Are they meaning the rump, or are they actually meaning cheeks? Like, like. Well, what you? What was your conclusion? Well, the Hebrew says cheeks. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, that's really not that great a part of an animal, <laughs> you know. Um, rump steak's actually a lot better. But anyway. Aaron, Aaron, it says in my humash, my stone humash, that it includes the animal's tongue. Which ah. includes the tongue. Okay, I didn't read that for much. Okay, well, that would be kind of better then. Mm. But the actual, the actual literal Hebrew just means the cheeks, the, the cheek and jawbone. Yeah. So Verse number eight. Good. Was yours? What's that one? Selling his inherited ancestral property. Yeah. Like we're supposed to own property. That's right. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, yeah so uh, who's the character in the Bible that seems to have property that's not allowed to have it? Anyone know? Levi. Yeah, but who's the Levite in the New Testament that sells oh. land? <laughs> Matthew. Barnabas. And once you get into Acts, you end up with uh, Barnabas, who's a Levite. It says he sold some land and gave it to the apostles. And your first, your first reaction is, hang on a second, he's not allowed to have any. What's he doing, What's he doing with it? So uh, it would be interesting when we get to it, that, that verse to go, hang well, there seems to be a little fudge room here. 
uh, around the rules of God, and they seem, which is unfortunately uh, Christians do all, all too often too. So let's not all throw stones. Yeah. Hello, Aaron. Hey, Shimshon. How are you, brother? Yeah, Shalom. I'm good. Yeah, um, for me, one thing that is very particular is um, part of the commandment to the general populace that um, they should not consult um, necromancers and um, um, the people that I'm just trying to just get the verse and so I can just read it directly. Um, 11. Okay. Uh, from verse number 10, it says, Let no one be found among you that consign his son and daughter to the fire, who or who is an ogre or a soothsayer and diviner, a sorcerer, uh, who cast spell. Uh, what do you think about it when um, people um, use horoscope? Um, they, they visit, they, they tell you, um, This is my star, this is my zodiac, and things like that. Yeah. Okay. So obvious. My first reaction is don't don't do it. Um, yeah. Does do these things have power? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Some. I'm going to suggest that the the crappy ones that you see in the newspaper are not part of that. They're just uh, um, probably not very strong. But there are. But that this sort of activity is true. Hence the injunction why we shouldn't partake of it. And I think that uh, it, it would behoove us not to partake of it. Um, but it, yeah. yet it seems everywhere and it seems to be becoming more and more infectious within our community. Yeah, yeah, because it's very difficult to enlighten people in modern world because a lot of people feel it's normal and it's okay and, you know, there is no harm. I'm not going to consult somebody in some spooky rooms and, you know, and so people feel very comfortable just to read it off the newspaper and because of that, um, they kind of embrace it in today's um, um, church or, you know, and also some messianic community also embrace it. And um, for me, I, I see it um, as wrong. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that always struck me when I, when I um, go up north towards the Galilee uh, is when you go into synagogues around the 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries, um, there's an amazing thing that you see on the floor. In the uh, in the mosaics, Neville, you've seen Astrology, a few of them. Yeah, yeah. What what are yeah. they? It's like astrological figures, like mythological. Yeah. Things, like the zodiac yeah. signs. Yes. Zodiac signs. Exactly. You walk into a synagogue and you see zodiacs, and you go, yeah. "What is that doing here?" Because <laughs> I I kind of remember there's these commands that we can't do this kind of stuff, um, and. And I think that so as we work through this passage, we, we need to wrestle and discuss the, the power that really is there, which we call the dark powers. Who are they? Where do they come from? What really is their power? Why do they exist? Why has God not just crushed them? Why do people, why, why is it so enticing? Why is that power more enticing than the power that we have? Why is that power for secular people, so much more beautiful and so much more mysterious and, and so much more wanting and desirable than the Holy Spirit. Um, well, where have we gone wrong in presenting the Holy Spirit as a very powerful uh, power to actually possess? 
And uh, but we we can discuss those things when when we go. Yes, that um, apart from the I'm going to raise up a prophet. That is one of the things that also hits me every time I read this passage as as well. This uh, strong uh, link here in this passage to another world or another another realm of power which we can't have or are forbidden from having access to. Yeah, and I think to that point, Aaron, that like verse 22 jumps out at me at the end that it says you shall not be afraid of him like a false prophet. So the whole concept of what you're talking about a minute ago, just even just fearing God versus fearing and being, you know, awed by evil spirits and evil powers and their abilities and things. You shall not be afraid of him like that was the point or part of the point, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, because it, it, the darkness makes us afraid which is an incredible psychological phenomenon, isn't it? You sit in a room with the lights on. It's your room. You know where all the furniture is. You could literally navigate it with your eyes closed. But turn the lights off, sit down, and stay there for 10 minutes, and suddenly the room feels a heck of a lot different. And uh, it's amazing the fear that the dark realm can produce in us. And, and here, at the end of this passage, Moses says, you will not be afraid. Uh, which is a, a nice, nice thing to say. Nice challenge, actually. Well, in okay. other words, fear God versus, you know, man and evil yeah. powers, right? And evil powers, yeah, not just man, but the, the other bit as well. All right. Yeah, because we're, we're, we're actually talking on, on multiple levels here. We have the priesthood and then we have um, – the other realm and it's interesting that those two would be would be put together in the same context same passage all right so let's uh, delve into it a little bit <clears throat> 18 verse 1 where uh, we begin to see um, uh, a special role for the levitical priests the tribe of levi so the levitical priests that is the leviim and the kohanim okay they uh, do not get a portion of Israel. And here by that they mean, I think, the land, right? Although they do get some property. Um, what do they get, guys? The spiritual inheritance. Okay, they get they a spiritual get, inheritance. But they do get something physical. What is they it? They get the land that is for um, the, the city of refuge. Yeah, Correct. That's right. There are certain um, towns given in every single tribe, including on the east side of the Jordan, as cities of refuge. So there's going to be property. So they will have some, some land, and so they will be able to grow some crops, and they will be able to uh, make some um, produce. And archaeologically, we have found some of those towns, okay, which is uh, kind of interesting, where you can go to places like Sapori, and you can see priestly villages okay and um and then you you wonder what exactly are they producing and they they by the late second temple period they have a tendency to produce things just for the temple so they're growing olives to make olive oil for the temple not to mass produce to sell and and you know flog off to rome at really nice expensive prices um but they do have houses, they do have families, they do have children, they do, they do build, uh, they do sow, they do reap. However, unlike other tribes, 
they, they are not given a large portion of territory with, with which to expand. They are very limited in their, uh, in their um, access to, to the land. Uh, here, they're called, it's called no portion. Okay? Instead, they get a nakhla, an inheritance, um, which is uh, one of the, uh, for the, the words for settlers in modern Hebrew, you know, the guys living in the West Bank, you have two words for them. You have one, mityashvim, uh, those who are settling, where we get the word settlers from. Uh, but they don't call themselves that. They call themselves the mitnachalim, the inheritors, okay? and, uh, which is this biblical Hebrew word that they're calling themselves, okay? the inheritance, nachala. Um, they, they will have no portion in the land of Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. So uh, what are they going to sustain themselves on a day-to-day basis? They're going to sustain themselves on a day-to-day basis on um, food offerings that come to the Mishkan, um, which is great if you're in the Mishkan, if you're in the tabernacle. Not so great if you're in one of the refuge cities on the east side of the Jordan. And so while it does say here that they are going to be eating the offerings uh, that come in the tabernacle, if you're not there and it's not your time to serve, then obviously you're going to have to sustain yourself somehow. So there's another way that you can get your economy, that you can actually uh, live your life. Uh, Verse 2, they shall have no inheritance among their brothers, the Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. So uh, they have no inheritance amongst their brothers. They're not going to be able to pass on titles uh, or uh, houses or, or you know, large amounts, large bank accounts. They're going to be, well, not impoverished, but they're not definitely not going to be rich. So currently, in today's world of world Jewry, Levi, the tribe of Levi, those that, that have the name Levine, Levonsky, or that kind of stuff, have 40% of world Jewry. There you go. Okay, I've muted everybody. Somebody's background is uh, making lots of noise. So... You're all on mute again, but you can unmute yourselves whenever you're ready. Okay. So uh, the tribe of Levi currently constitutes about 4% of world Jewry. Okay. Um, uh, although they, uh, according to the number of tribes, they're one thirteenth. Okay. But uh, they're 4% currently of world Jewry. Um, in uh, continuing verse 2, they have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as he has promised them. And this shall be the, their, the priest's due from the people. From those offerings, uh, from those people who come and actually offer a sacrifice, uh, whether it's an ox or a sheep, they shall give the priest the shoulder, the cheeks, and the stomach. Okay? And I'm with Neville. That seems pretty random. As, as, um, as, you know, if you're, if you're the priest and you're divvying up the cow, which bit of the cow would you really, really, really like? I'm going to go filet mignon. 
but um, that's not not what you're getting. Um, steak. Yeah, there you go. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Take a ribeye. Why not? But um, uh, I I don't know why they they the, the Bible is quite specific in dividing up these portions. Did does anyone have an idea? There doesn't seem to be a really good commentary out there to say this is the reason why. My Bible does have a cross reference, uh, Aaron, in Leviticus. 7 um 32 and uh third right through to 34 but it, it it refers to it as the right thigh so i don't know but right there is there is a portion uh the, of the thigh which is in relation to that which was touched by god when he was wrestling with jacob but um it, it, it the cheekbone isn't it and the stomach isn't it and, uh, they need the they need the stomach to make cheese. They got the rennet out of the stomach there. Oh, so is that the reason why? Okay. <laughs> yeah. In um in Numbers eighteen, you, you end up giving ten percent of your tithe to the priests, to the Levites. Sorry, and then ten percent of what the Levites get, they give to the Kohanim. So it's ten percent of your produce. And um, in Numbers eighteen. The, the tithe that you give to uh, the Levites isn't considered sacred, meaning they can actually take it home. So they eat a portion of the sacrifice while they're serving, and then they can take a portion of the tithe back home, and that's actually what they live on. Okay? So they're basically paid ministers. Okay? They're slightly poor. They're not wealthy, uh, but they're not engaged in the full economy. Uh, which is essentially the way our pastors are to this day. Okay, most pastors there are there are some pastors who have tent ministries, meaning they've got jobs and they are part of the economy and they are uh, paying taxes and, and working and all that kind of stuff. But uh, most shepherds uh, derive an income that that comes from the gifts of the people, and uh, it's something we inherit from the Hebrew Bible. Okay, this sort of idea of paying your shepherds uh, is, is, has been around for a very long time. Um, it's also a pattern that you see Paul doing. Okay? In Paul in the New Testament, what does he say when he's talking about um, paying your shepherds? Anyone know? He says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads the grain. Yes. Now, you would think that um, if he needs to quote a really good Bible verse, he could leap to Numbers 18. He could leap to Deuteronomy 18. He could actually quote, this is, you give the priests these, but he doesn't. He misses that completely, and he goes all the way to Deuteronomy uh, and, uh, and, and ends up with an agrarian um, motif. Don't muzzle the ox while it's treading grain. Uh, it's an interesting take that, that Paul does, but it, it runs in the same vein. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm you, that's because it, you, you don't have to pretend to be of the Levitical line or, you know, the standing of a priest. You just have to be a worker. Right. That's, yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. You work. And you don't own land, but yet we find in Acts 4, Barnabas seems to own property. So how does he get around it, guys? How does Barnabas, whose actual name is Joseph from Cyprus, the Levite, okay, Barnabas is his uh, extra name. 
Um, how does he get to own property? Any idea? I think you can own property in the world city. Um, and the priests were allowed to own properties in the world city, like um, in Jerusalem, they could own property, even um, if it's not um, a city of refuge. Okay. So the, in verse 1, it says, The Levitical priests shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. Yet we know that they have property inside Levitical uh, cities, the, the, those, but if they're not in the Levitical city, how can they own property? Any idea? Because obviously they do. So how do they get around it? And it literally comes from a literal reading of the text. Gifts. What is it? Gifts. <laughs> Inherit it. Inheritance? No. With? They can, they can buy it. Yeah. No. Israel. He shall have no portion with Israel. What happens if he's uh, not outside in the Israel? Uh, so this is how this is how uh, in the the late uh, first temple and in the early second temple period, Jewish people read the Bible literally, and it says Levites can't have a portion of Israel. That's fine, but I'm not in Israel, which means this rule doesn't apply to me. And so you find that Levites outside the land of Israel owned property, and they had no problem with that. So this is the selling of his, his inherited property. That's what they're talking about, selling land they inherited outside the land. Yeah. Well, that's what they would say. But inside the land, they don't own any land. Nothing is passed on. They just have cities, which they do something in. Doesn't The text doesn't say what they do in them. What we know from archaeology is they begin to produce things for the temple. Right? They get very, very much uh, motivated into providing things for the temple, looking after uh, uh, the animals for sacrifice, producing the oil that you're going to have, wove, uh, uh, weaving the correct garments that you're supposed to actually wear, uh, making the correct gold jewelry and things and, and articles for, for the temple. So they, the cities were quite vibrant per se, but... They were dedicated for one, one purpose. But once you got outside the land of Israel, then all bets were off. Okay? And, uh, and, and so you tended to find that the tribes mingled and, and molded themselves together once they were outside uh, the land. Okay. So they do have, um, uh, they sustain themselves on the gifts and offerings of the people of God. Uh, in verse 4, they get the first fruits of the grain, they get wine, they get oil, they get the fleece from the sheep and, 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 uh, and, and a whole bunch of other things. When it, whatever you were producing and giving to the temple, there was a portion for the priests, which, of course, yes, uh, what does that have the potential to set up? Anyone know? If someone is coming and giving gifts to God and you get a portion of it and that's just part of the deal, 
there's, there is the potential for this to go horribly wrong. What, what, what's the, where, where's the potential for it to go? Pinching too much. Yeah, taking, taking the best when the best was supposed to be God's. Right? And so you find the sons of Eli are already beginning to corrupt, become corrupt, right? And, um, but that this is, this is one of the burdens, actually, of the priesthood, is they, they have to resist this corruption. Not everybody can, unfortunately. Um, but that potential is there. And you see it appear uh, sometimes. And uh, oh, Bernardo asks, can a Levite have land in Gaza? <laughs> uh, good luck if he does. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, but you skipped the first question. Oh, sorry. Uh, great point. So does that change according to the borders of Israel? So do, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good, yeah, good point. Okay, thanks. Okay, so um, <laughs> that, that's a good point. So the, um, the borders of Israel change. This is true. They, they expand and they contract and they expand. And if, if they're expanding and we're calling that the Holy Land, um, how then do we apply a Levitical, a Levitical territory? That's actually a really good question. Um, that, that, I don't know the answer to that one, Bernardo, but I've got a feeling that if there's a Levite who really likes beachfront territory in Gaza, he'll probably go along the lines of this wasn't our original allotted territory uh, according to uh, the original book of Numbers, so I'm good. Is that okay? Um, but there might be a more expansionist uh, guy who says, what are you talking about? That's the Holy Land. You know, you can't do that. Um, go back to your village. Uh, it would be an interesting debate. Um, I'm not sure. Um, what is interesting is that the Jewish people actually have been kicked out of Gaza five times in all of human history. Okay? They've been kicked out by um, uh, Egyptians, Romans, Greeks uh, themselves. Actually, they've kicked themselves out of Gaza. Uh, and there was another nation. I can't remember which one. Um, Philips. It could have been. No, they conquered the Philistines. Um, so, so archaeologically, whenever archaeologists are in Gaza, whenever we had it, they dig up incredible Jewish ruins. Okay, there's Jewish Jewish um, cities there, uh, cemeteries, you know, all kinds of great things, synagogues. Um, uh, but uh, and so currently, there's no Jews in Gaza right now. But if history loves to repeat itself, then you can probably bet that the Jewish people will return to Gaza because they've certainly does it, done it five times in the past. <laughs> but Aaron, yep. isn't Gaza excluded from the land that God gives to them? That Am is wrong about that? Yes, you are correct. That according to the initial um, uh, divvy up of the land, Gaza is not there. However, five times they've been there in history. Right. And, and five times they've been removed. That's those Levites. That's actually the point. <laughs> but uh, it, it is interesting that they, that they have, um, and Gaza in, in uh, Hebrew means stronghold. And isn't that interesting that that's actually what it's become? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it's Aza, though. It's not Gaza, right? It's Aza. It, Aza, yeah, Aza. So Oz means strength. So Boaz, Boaz, in him is strength. Az is, is strength. And in, and in Arabic, it's called Raza, which means den of thieves. 
So isn't that one an interesting oh. uh, <laughs> layout for girls? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, um, yeah. So let's let's keep working through with with our in it, with our little priesthood here. Uh, verse uh, five: For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. So, what's one thing we notice about the priesthood? Everlasting. Well, yeah, so, correct for all time. But what else? So it's got it's got one caveat. It's an eternal priesthood. It's hereditary. It's hereditary and it's chosen. So what else has been chosen? What, what was chosen last chapter? Kings. kings. So kings are chosen, priests are chosen, and there's going to be another thing that's chosen in this chapter, prophets. So it's very interesting that when it comes down to divinely chosen uh, role, it's prophet, priest, and king. Okay, so verse uh, 6. And if a Levi... Yes, sir? Um, this, uh, for him and his sons forever, immediately what comes to my mind is kings and priests in the order of Melchizedek and the tension that may or may not create. It does create a tension, and the Bible loves tension. Of course. As, no. Yes, it does. But these are... These are the serving in the temple as opposed to something, I suppose we'd have to go into a discussion about uh, Melchizedek, Melchizedek, and being kings and priests in his order as opposed to what these guys are doing. I'm sad. I'm asking. I'm not telling. I'm asking. No, this is, this is a really good um, uh, piece of tension uh, because you have this, this, this uh, verse in Deuteronomy which says that the priesthood which is going to come from the tribe of Levi, is going to be an eternal priesthood and is chosen by God. You can't get to change it. But something happened uh, at the end of the Maccabean period. What was it, Roddy? Yeah, they, uh, they changed that around. They became kings and priests, which is forbidden. Correct. The Maccabees, the Maccabean family, the Hashmonim, which everybody seems to like them because they give us the donuts, uh, they do not. They do not come from the tribe of Levi, and they don't come from the tribe of Judah. So, what can't they be? Kings or priests? Yes, but they did both. They made themselves priests, kings, and they made themselves priests, and they began to supplant the priesthood. And so, the priesthood becomes corrupt. So by the time of Yeshua, you've got a corrupt priesthood. The high priest, which should have been from the line of Aaron, it should have been dynastic. It should never have changed. Suddenly it, begins, it becomes like almost a yearly bought cycle that the Gospels even say the high priest at that year was so-and-so, which is actually a dig. It's actually not, a, not, a, not just a statement of fact. It's a this shouldn't be. Um, so you get these disgruntled priests who are Levites and Cohens who know that they should have been priests forever, ministering in the temple, but now they can't because they got kicked out by their, their wonderful uh, freedom fighters, the Hasmoneans. So they flee to the perimeters of, uh, of, and the borders of Israel. Uh, and today we call those guys the Essenes or the Dead Sea sect. Right. Yeah. And so you, you have the, the Qumran community. And if you're ever in Israel, I highly recommend a nice little day trip down to Qumran. Uh, 
uh, and, 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 and as you do, please tag along yourselves with a book, uh, The uh, Complete Dead Sea Scrolls by Geza Vermes, who's a Jewish guy who actually became uh, an Anglican priest after being a Catholic uh, for a while. And he translated the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls into English. And what's so valuable about that is it describes these disgruntled priests, Levites and Cohens, who are wrestling with this concept that they should have been in Jerusalem, but it's now corrupt. What sort of priesthood is left to them? And, uh, and you've already mentioned it, Roddy. What do, they, what do they conclude? There's another priesthood out there. It's the priesthood of, of Melchizedek. But his is a messianic priesthood. So they, they have a fantastic uh, uh, scroll called the Scroll of Melchizedek where they discuss the, uh, the order of Melchizedek. They discuss the, uh, the, the priesthood of, the, of this messianic character whom they call Melchizedek. Um, hey, Aaron. Yep. Yeah. Hi, Aaron. Um, what was the, so it was the complete Dead Sea Scrolls. Who was the author again? Uh, the, so the complete Dead Sea Scrolls in English um, mm -hmm. was written by a guy called Geza Vermes. Okay. So uh, G-E-Z-A, Geza. And Vermes, M-E-R-M-A-S. Um, he's a very interesting little history about his, his own personal life. But he, um, he also wrote a, a variety of great books, including he wrote a history of early Christianity, uh, what he called uh, early Christianity, um, for the first 150 years. But he described early Christianity as charismatic Judaism. <laughs> Okay, that, that's his uh, take on it. He says, we're looking at Jewish people who are, who are filled with the spirit and this is what they're coming up with. Okay, and so he, calls, he calls the first 150 years, you know, they've got power, they're driving out demons, they're doing all kinds of funky stuff. Um, he calls it charismatic Judaism. I'm not 100% sure that's a, the right way to describe it, but it is a fascinating book. Um, also, Aaron, for people who are interested, um, if you get the Septuagint Jeremiah and the uh, Masoretic Jeremiah and you put them in two columns side by side and go towards the end, you will see where verses have been altered and or changed um, to each other. They're very different and it's concerning the priesthood itself. Uh, yeah, of, right. Yep. For some of these issues. Yes, so it, it, it appears that um, there was a bit of fudging by the non-Levitical non guys in the, in the texts. Um, so that, that's an interesting discussion. And maybe also in a reaction to Christendom over the years. And yeah. Melchizedek, the kings and priests in the order of. In the order of, that's correct. Yeah. So the... The, um, so, so I'll just mention just briefly, Shimshon, then on to you, that um, in, when Abraham okay. comes and meets Melchizedek, Melchizedek brings out and two elements, and in which order are they? You know them, Roddy? He brings out? The bread and then wine. Bread and wine. So when you are, and, and on Shabbat, you bring out two elements, but in which order? Opposite wine and bread. Correct. You do write wine and bread. Now, why do why do Christian altars bring out and in their communion service do bread and wine and Shabbat you do wine and bread? It's because and it's very simple. The the altar that is being done by by the uh, the Christians 
is the altar of Melchizedek. They're in that order, and so therefore they do bread wine, whereas in the, for, for the Jewish people, they're still doing the Levitical, which is wine bread. And, uh, and you, so it's a very simple little difference, but it demonstrates that the reason why it's, it's, it's not that Christians woke up one day and said, we're going to do the opposite because... They're actually doing a theological thing where they're, they're looking at Hebrews, knowing that their priesthood can't be Levitical because they're not Levites. Their, their, their priesthood must be in the order of Melchizedek, and in so doing, they will do the order of bread, wine, not wine, bread, whereas Levites will do the opposite. Okay, uh, Bernardo has an interesting little point where he does mention that Jeremiah, who's also a priest, happens to buy land. And uh, which is very interesting because not typically supposed to be able to do that. Um, that's a that's a really good point, Bernardo. And I'd never thought about that, so I'm going to have to dig that one up. Okay, what is God doing, making a priest purchase land? That's very interesting. Okay. Yeah, but it's interesting, Aaron. In that in that passage, um, it's it's prophetic in the sense that there he's buying the land, and there's witnesses, and then they go off to Babylon. And, and, and he's buying the land as it's getting, the land is getting taken away as a prophetic of coming back. So that seemed to be more in a sort of a prophetic realm than actually just buying the land. Could be, could be. I mean, for sure, Jeremiah never got to enjoy the land. He was one. <laughs> well, that's true, yes. He certainly didn't get any produce from it, no, because he himself ran off to, which, which country did he go to? Well, he was forced off into Egypt. Egypt. He went. He went south. Yes. Rest of his buddies went um, went east. He went west. Now, Aaron, that's another thing I wanted to check with you because I thought that the um, Zadokite priesthood was pushed out to Egypt, or that they they you know got chased out of town and they, they ended up in Egypt. A, a large number of them did absolutely. And what did they do when they got there? Do you remember Neville? Yes. Um, um, temple worship. Horses. <laughs> That's right. They bore horses and multiple wives. And yeah, no, they, uh, they, uh, they, it's true. They actually established a temple. But they chose, <laughs> they chose to go to Egypt, and God told them if they would stay. Even though Israel had been exiled under Nebuchadnezzar, he told them to stay here, and he will give them everything that they need. But they still chose to go to Egypt. And Jeremiah follows him down there to keep uh, giving them the word as a prophet the entire time. Yeah. It's a very interesting study. I forget yeah. this in Isaiah. Yeah. The, I, I know that we're only supposed to build a temple where the place the Lord chooses, um, but it is also an archaeological fact that the Jewish people built temples uh, in multiple locations. So uh, they built one in Egypt. They built one in Elephantine. They um, built one uh, down there in the desert. Uh, and they built one up north as well, I think. Um, it's, just, it's just a thing that, that uh, we, we know. Uh, and, 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 and let's not throw stones from a house of glass because we know what's written in the text and we all do the opposite. So let's, let's all admit that as well, right, and, and then repent. But uh, so, so we just acknowledge that, the Jewish people, uh, following the destruction of the temple, did go down to um, the, the correct Zadok priests, did go down to Egypt 
fleeing the, uh, the wrath of the Hasmoneans and did start worship of God. They weren't worshiping anybody else. They were worshiping God uh, in, in, uh, in Egypt. Okay. So, all right. So, Shimshon, I complete, I'm back to you again. What did you want to say? Okay. All right. I just wanted to um, um, put up uh, a concept about um, the early Christians being referred to as a Jewish sect. Um, it's it's not something new. In fact, in the in the book of in the book of Acts, um, Paul and Barnabas were referred to as um, the leaders of uh, the sect of the Nazarene, um, which is um, referring to a Jewish sect. And also during the Bakuba revolt, um, the one of the problem was that um, the 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 Christian or the Messianic was seen as a sect of the Jews until the, um, the the chief rabbi declared uh, Bakuba, um, Simeon, as um, Bakuba, that means son of the star, which is a messianic, um, a messianic title. And that's what caused the division between the, the Orthodox Jews and the followers of Jesus Christ, because they don't have another Messiah apart from Yeshua. And so they pulled out from the war and the war kind of um, turned around on the Christians. And so the concept of calling um, Christians um, a sect of the Jew has been in ancient writings, also in the church fathers' um, writings, um, like in the Catholic church fathers, you see that they still refer to um, a lot of um, them as a um, um, Jewish sect. Yep. Yep. And, and the tension for them was, um, how, how do our Levites relate to the, the other Levites? How do our uh, Cohen's relate to the other Cohen's um, when the tension gets quite quite strong. And not only that, what do we now do with Gentiles who are coming in and joining and taking roles of leadership? Um, it, it gets very, very uh, uh, convoluted. Um, it's interesting that in the Talmud, um, they, they, they call uh, Bakochva two names. They call him Bakochva, son of the star, the messianic term. And because they don't think he was the Messiah, they also call him Bar Koziba, which means son of a liar. <laughs> okay. So it, 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 yeah. it, was Rabbi, it was Rabbi Akiva that um, declared him Bar Kokhva. Yeah. And, um, and Rabbi Akiva is uh, very respected up till now. I mean, people don't, you know, yeah. it, it, it's very complex. <laughs> yeah. Ra Ra Rabbi Akiva has a street named after him in every single town and city in Israel. Oh, <laughs> oh man. You, you go to any city and you will find an Akiva street. And uh, yet he's the guy that still said, Bar is the Messiah. I and mean, everyone went, no, you're wrong. And he's, yeah. <laughs> they're going to keep keep street named after him anyway. <laughs> you, you can be wrong, okay? You can make a mistake. Um, he has some very good... Um, uh, Torah in and in, in, in yes yes absolutely. Thing, uh, Aaron, at least we don't have to be afraid of um, Rabbi Akiva, according to this last verse. No, no, we don't. That's right. No, we don't. Absolutely, we have to be afraid of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the the difference, and I remember David Pelegi saying this, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna quote him because it's a good quote. He said. Um, uh, one of the differences with the disciples of Yeshua and the disciples of Rabbi Akiva is this. When Rabbi Akiva was caught, and he was caught by the Romans, and he was, he was executed, and on his way to execution, 
his disciples were right there with him. And uh, Rabbi Akiva was crying and weeping, and his disciples asked him, um, Rabbi, are you, are you crying because you're about to be flayed? The Romans were going to flay him alive, right? They were going to literally peel his flesh off, okay, layer by layer. They're a horrible way to go. And he said, no, I've just run out of time to study the Bible. <laughs> okay. But, okay, it's a nice little, little story. <laughs> but the point is that his disciples didn't run away. Jesus is dead. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's a very interesting point that, um, you know, even though Bar uh, uh, Rabbi Akiva was wrong, you know, he, got, he got the wrong Messiah, he, he, he missed it, his disciples were still pretty loyal. Mm -hmm. And we have the true Messiah, and yet too often we run away. <laughs> and now, isn't that a very interesting little little thought and so yeah david Pleggy has a has a nice little take on that one he said um you know that let's all let's 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 humble ourselves when we when we contemplate our messiah and um and and some of the uh, rabbis who contended uh, against him some of their disciples were even more loyal than we are okay so the uh, the where were we up to? So the Levite is chosen as much as a king is chosen, and soon to be in this pro a prophet. So the the Levite uh, can come from a town uh, wherever he is because he's got to live somewhere. Okay, so he actually has a house and he has a wife and he's got kids and he's actually living in a town and he's actually doing stuff other than when he's not in the temple. Uh, so what is he doing? He is. Well, we're not 100% sure what he's doing. Um, uh, we do know that the economies of those towns tended to be geared towards producing material for, for the temple. So he comes when he wants uh, to, to the place that the Lord will choose, so that's Shiloh or to Jerusalem, and he ministers, okay, um, which is interesting. Um, it seems to imply that he can... You know, he can just show up whenever he feels like it and, uh, you know, go to synagogue or go to church. Um, uh, however, we do know from other sources that they had divided up the uh, roles inside the temple in, into priestly courses. This verse tends to imply that even if it's not his time, he can show up. Can't he? Yes, he can. And this confuses now any dating you want to do with Zechariah. Because we know that Zechariah is of a certain tribe. And we say, oh, their tribes are, can, be a, can, can, can only function at such and such a time and such and such a time. But now we have a verse in, in Deuteronomy, the most popular book at the, in the Second Neville period, that they can show up whenever they feel like it. Uh, and so the, the, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but uh, please don't tell me that everybody knows when Zechariah is serving in the temple, because you don't. You, you might have some really strong leads. That is true. But don't try and say you know 100%. Because you actually don't. You have yeah, they, 
Yeah, they try to calculate to get to when Jesus was Correct. born. Yeah, 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 that's what we're trying to do. However, we actually have a biblical injunction uh, that says you actually can go and minister whenever you feel like it, right? And, um, and I'm going to admit that when I read this verse, I had to double check because uh, I was like, what? what you, whenever he feels like it? You mean like one day he wakes up and he goes, you know what? Um, I've run out of coffee. Uh, the crops aren't, aren't in for another three weeks. You know, I've got really nothing else to do. Think I'll go to Jerusalem. Or uh, I'm running out of food. Think I'll go to Jerusalem. Or, you know, um, uh, uh, mum's sick. Uh, I, I might want to go pray. Best, best for me to go to Jerusalem. There are all kinds of reasons why he might want to go. But he could go. He's allowed. And when he's allowed, he has to be given complete access to all the privileges that are allowed. Right? He gets a portion of the food that's there. He gets all the other stuff uh, as well, which I found, for me personally, uh, quite eye-opening. I hadn't actually seen that before. That was, a, that was a new one for me. So the Levite comes from any of the towns in Israel where he lives, and he may come whenever he desires uh, to the place the Lord will choose, Shiloh or uh, Jerusalem. And he ministers in the name of the Lord. So he actually does a function. So he shows up in the temple and they go, hey, how you doing, brother? What are you doing here? They don't turn him around <laughs> and say, go away. It's not your time. Go away. It's not nine o'clock in the morning for church. Please go away. You know, it's not the Sabbath. Uh, we're done. No, he comes and he starts to do his job, whatever that is. Now, if you leave, yes, sir. Can we say that um, because of this um, problem that it might cause for them, that is why they instituted the courses for the families and so that they can fix the problem so that they don't have at a particular time so much people and maybe at one time and every other person is feeling tired and nobody's there. So it could be, but that's, of course, now a later edition but you're still going to have the most popular books say that a Levite can show up whenever he wants. Yeah. Maybe the restriction is that if he shows up, but they actually don't need any, an extra pair of hands and he doesn't get to minister. So could, he, it also could be true. Yep. Uh, so if he shows up and they need him, then he can minister and he receives the benefits. Could be. We, yes, we don't but, know. We, we just what's know. what's he doing? What's he doing when the angel comes and talks to him? Well, he's in the, uh, he's in the temple, in a special place. And what special place? Is he in the yeah, Kodesh, he, Kodesh he, the Holy of Holies? He's in the, no, he's in the altar of incense. He's in the altar of incense. He's, he's standing before the parochet. No one else is there with him. So he's in he's, that particular job. Can anyone show? That would be the question. He, he's not, Zachariah is not the high priest. Only the high priest can go into behind the parochet, but he's doing some of the other functions. Just adding that into the mix. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good, yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah it, it, it just means that we have, a, we have a couple of verses here that allow a Levite to show up anytime he wants. Very interesting. Yep, I hadn't seen that before. All right, and he ministers to the name of the Lord, like, like all his fellow Levites who stand and minister before the Lord. 
then he may have equal portions to eat besides that which he receives from the from the sale of his patrimony. So that the, his his inheritance is nachala. So he gets um, he gets to sustain himself while he's working. So while he's working, he is sustained, or as Paul says, okay, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading grain. And uh, but he also gets to keep a piece. He gets to keep his. 10% of um, the gifts, which he's allowed then to take home uh, and spend however he wants uh, to support his family or his community or however they did it. Um, the text is quite blank in terms of how you actually spend it, but it just, so it just says he can do whatever he wants. Okay, so a couple of takeaways from this. Priests are chosen, okay? The Levites are a chosen tribe. They have a responsibility. Their priesthood is eternal, and uh, and they have this ability to be able to show up whenever they feel like it. Which is really kind of cool when you think about it. Um, anyway, okay. So now we get into the things we're not allowed to do. This is um, uh, as the community is entering the land of Canaan. Um, we have experienced. Uh, pagan uh, worship before, both in Egypt and in Mesopotamia. We've got a long history in our sacred history about what we're not supposed to do. We're about to encounter it. We're going to wipe it out. However, there's a danger that we actually don't and that somehow this, this, this insidious nature of the occult uh, will, will infect our community. So there are some rules. And so God says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, once again, Right? Again, I don't know how many times, I should probably look it up, how many times Moses says, you are not the original inhabitants of this territory. This is a gift. God is giving it to you. Now, when you come, do not learn to follow the, the abominations, the practices of those nations. Um, they are, there shall not be found among you, and it gives you this, mouse, this long list. Somehow... Evil, evil is enticing. And we can all admit to that as a, as, a, as a true statement. Sin is enticing. I mean, it is. If sin wasn't enticing, you wouldn't do it. Right? Um, but it is. And, and yet this dark world, the world of horror, the world of, uh, of the occult, the world of witchcraft and magic, um, even though it's dark, even though if anybody had a serious conversation would say, you know, that's probably not a wise thing to do, it's still attractive. We can't get away from it. We're enticed to it, not just in books and movies, but in real life. And, uh, uh, and, and but the Lord gives us a warning. Uh, please don't. There shall be not, and then he gets a little bit more specific. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his or her son or daughter as an offering. Uh, this is to the fire god Molech, which is the Canaanite god, uh, which is unfortunately what our wisest of kings ends up doing. So uh, Solomon somehow gets enticed to do this. So it is attractive, it is enticing, and it is dangerous. Anyone who practices divination, and then you get this long list of uh, these things you can't do, divination, uh, the, uh, the telling of fortunes or the interpretation of omens or a sorcerer, those who engages in magic, the kesem, kesemin, or a charmer, a medium, 
A necromancer, someone who's uh, uh, being able to summon up the dead. So that is a power. Now, isn't that interesting? All of these are true. They're actual real powers. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Um, and what, for me, what was interesting is when I was going through the Hebrew for this, the uh, in verse uh, is it, uh, 11, um, some have enchanter, some have charmer or, or medium. The word there is um, the nachash. Yeah. The What's a nachash? Uh, 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 yeah. It's like a fiery one or serpentine. It's, an, it's a snake. A swifar is a, is a fiery, fiery serpent. But, uh, but a nachash, he calls it a nachash. And you're like, whoa, that's a very interesting thing to call your enchanter, the one who hisses like a snake. Okay. Uh, so when you go to him for your wisdom, then you don't get a real word. You get a hiss. You get, a, you get something very subtle. You get something very, very, very dark. And it's linked uh, to the, the false words of the original nachash, which, you, which is the serpent in the garden. Um, so how do these things seem to exist? They're real. Where do they come from? The text doesn't say where they come from. It just acknowledges their existence. And it says you're not going to do these things. Any ideas? Uh, Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6. Yeah, I mean, we, we honestly really don't know. Genesis 6 is our link, our clue, which is then expounded upon in books like Enoch and Jubilees. But, of course, those are not in our Bible, so we're not going to read them, right? Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah, we will. And we get some really good background. Um there, the, the, it does appear, as, as you all know, that uh, this other world that exists beyond ours, um, and, and according to Jewish tradition, heaven has seven levels. Okay? There's levels of it, and parts of it get very close to the earth, and then they often overflow. So the wisdom of heaven, as James calls it, Okay, has unfortunately uh, infected the earth. And it shouldn't be here. So it's not inherently evil. It just shouldn't be here. Does that make sense? No. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's uh, more, uh, sorry. It's more um, uh, uh, Satan was cast to the earth, right? Yeah. And... With, wasn't like a third of the angels or something at the time? Uh, according to Revelation, you have a third of the angels, yes. And Isaiah, I think it was a cross-reference there, too, of the concept. Okay. I don't know when, if it was, you know, what date. <laughs> but that concept, and therefore we have evil spirits. So, yeah, I believe in evil yes. spirits. But where did they originate from? Well, fallen angels, no? Where did they originate from? Which means they were in heaven. So the power that they had, which is real, belonged in heaven. So it was given to them in heaven. It was given to them by God. So therefore, it's good. Can't be bad. God doesn't give bad angels bad powers and say, 
I'm going to cast you out and you'll use these bad powers that I've given you for bad stuff. So they have power, but they were, it was never meant to leave heaven. But it has left heaven and it's now here. For example, we are told not to, to contact a necromancer who or someone who inquires from the dead. How do, does anybody get the power to talk to dead people? How, I mean, you don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it. But somehow they do it. Even, even in the Bible, we have in, uh, ca cases where people resurrect dead people uh, who are not anywhere attached to God. Okay, what's the classic example? Samuel. Samuel. Yes, exactly. Um, so we have the witch of Eindor. Now, somehow she has power. Now, we don't know how she does it, but she does it. <laughs> and um, she resurrects Samuel. He's not actually too happy that he's there. So that didn't work out so well. But she, she ends up having the power and somehow, and she summons Samuel. It's not like Samuel was like, no, I'm not coming. No, I'm not. I don't know this girl. Um, you know, he actually came. So there is, uh, now where did this power come from? You don't know, I don't know. But it means that there was this power, it existed, but it was not meant to exist on this planet. They even say like, like information about um, cures and potions and things like that. How they have that knowledge. Yeah, that's right. The, <laughs> it, it, the, the, uh, the, the book of, Enoch and Jubilees mentions the angels sharing this wisdom with humans. Some of it seems beneficial. And so you have, and, and, and it seemed good. They it did good things. And so in today's world, we have a lure of this, this demonic power, and it's called white magic. Mm-hmm. Heard of this, haven't you? Yeah. This yeah. I bet you could probably tell us all some powerful stories from Nigeria. Yes. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's a lot of um, witchcraft powers that um, a lot of people do in across Africa. In Nigeria, yeah. it's very prominent um, in where we refer to as the Benin Empire. Um, they they do a lot of voodoo. Um, there's, there's times that they call down thunder from the sky. Yeah. There are people that can invoke thunders and they have people that could, um, disappear and appear somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. In Brazil, we have a lot of the white, we have the, we have both actually white and black. The white is more associated with the more aristocratic upper middle class <laughs> and it's mixed, with, it's mixed with something that's very very uh, predominant here called a spiritism which then somehow gets involved with the catholic church and there's some sort of like syncretism and things like that in some churches it's uh it's kind of crazy aaron yes what's sir? the first thing that that sh should come to everyone's mind on this subject god asked one of the angels to do what who wants to go and be a lying spirit? Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. You're, you teach that. You teach this quite often. Uh, it's yeah. a very interesting yeah. subject. Yeah, yeah. 
Got you. That's yeah. right. You go down. I, 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 see, I, see, I see that also, yeah, because first, it's just like when they accuse, um, I think Bernardo was mentioning that, they accuse Yeshua of using the spirit of Beelzebub to cast out Beelzebub. In other words, yes. we, we recognize there is a power out there uh, that is not from God. Um, um, not from God in the sense that we're not getting it directly from God, but God doesn't want us to relate with this power because this power, just like um, is mentioned by Roddy, is a lying spirit. It's a lying spirit. Um, like for, for me, the way I try to understand the Samuel situation um, is that it's the spirit that knows Samuel and will just try to mimic Samuel. It's not that it's actually bringing Samuel's spirit. Because if we look at it from the Bible, when somebody is dead, you can't, you can't talk to that person anymore. Um, either in any powers. So it's the spirit we try to mimic that person and make us to believe that um, it's actually speaking to that person. And we tell us things that are very personal and we will have to believe. And so that's the way I try to understand it. Okay. Um, the act, uh, normal Jewish commentary um, doesn't have that kind of background that you've just mentioned. They actually say, uh, isn't Samuel amazing? He's the only prophet who managed to give a prophecy after he was dead. <laughs> okay, because he actually, you know, he gets resurrect, he gets summoned back by this witch, uh, uh, and uh, and he doesn't answer any of Saul's questions. In fact, he then gives a prophecy by saying, "Actually, mate, tomorrow you're going to go out and die." Right. Um, uh, he doesn't yeah. give any any beneficial information yeah. at all. In fact, he's just quite grumpy, um, which he wasn't. But one thing life. that is very different anyway, from... So no change, really. <laughs> <laughs> Something that's very different from that prophecy, from the usual prophecy that most prophets give. Uh, most prophets give, a, um, like a prophet of doom that gives a warning, but they will always attach a... A kind of way of escape that if you repent there will be a way of escape and but there was none this, there was none there was none in this none. and that makes you to feel is this really from god because um if it's if god will always make a way of escape but now we don't get any way of escape yeah yeah so the the modern well as the what you've both mentioned in nigeria and in brazil is this attachment to the other realm somehow by use of magic and they some some call it black but some call it white there's there's somehow this false allure that it's actually good um you know that you can get into this magic and you can do good things and that you can get well and uh and if you read enoch and jubilees there were some positive things that these angels shared from heaven and it seemed that there was this, there was this enticement there's this good but it always leads bad the other side is always attached to it there's never just a light side there's always the dark side and um and uh uh for those of us who are a little bit ancient um and remember a guy called ozzy osborne does anyone remember him Osborne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, they asked him, so, so Ozzy, you know, you're supposed to be the Prince of Darkness. Is that real? Is that fluff? And he said, no, you know, we were just a bunch of idiots on drugs and it was all rubbish <laughs> and we all lied and we all made it up. But he goes, um, but I'll tell you, the voices in my head never stop. 
You know, wasn't he? Didn't he say he was a Christian at some point? Was I know there was one rock star? Uh, was it Kiss? Kiss was it Kiss? Oh yeah, that's right. The Kiss guys who were Jewish, they yeah. became Christians. Isn't that bizarre? But but I don't think Ozzy ever did. But the thing is, you know, he does say he he does say, listen, you know, um, uh, the voices in my head they never stop. And so even though you might think it's a trick, even though you might think it's innocent, you might only think that you're only touching onto the light side, that Lua is just so bad and the enemy switches in and he corrupts it all because it's all dark. And God says you are not going to have any part of this. You will not touch magic. You will not touch these uh, guys who summon up the dead. Uh, you will not touch any of these people. Um, this is not for you. Uh, there was an, an interview, I mean, just kind of adding on, uh, just Bob Dylan, I think, you know, he's Jewish. And then at some point he said he sold the soul to the devil. And I mean, yeah, he, yeah. for fame or something like that, kind of sad. I don't know it's what how much of truth there is to well, that. Well, Bob Dylan did a couple of Christian albums there and the White Album and Great Train Rollins. So, um, so they, they, they oscillate a little bit. Um, but the um, point is... Uh, the, the Lord says uh, through Moses, these are abominations that, and, and, the, and, the, and they're so bad. This is one of the reasons why they're being kicked out of the land. Mm. Right? You know, it's, it's, uh, this, this is, you know, not only is it going to be an inheritance for you, but it's, there's another flip side. I get to destroy these guys because they're doing stuff that they shouldn't do. They're, they're, they're looking after the wisdom that was supposed to stay up here it was not meant to be on the planet. It's not meant to be accessible to humans. It's only supposed to be accessible to, to angels. Um, and they're sharing it with you, and that's not good. It's not, it's not going to work for you. In verse 13, and then I'll go back to whatever comment uh, Shimon was about to say. Verse, thing, verse 13 says, you will be blameless before the Lord your God, right? Israel is to seek purity within its community, Okay. The presence of the Lord is going to be within their community. They're meant to be pure. And this is going to be a reflection uh, to the nations around. We've come out of those nations. Those nations that are doing these abominations are going to disappear. You're not going to have any part of that. You're going to reflect something completely the opposite. You're going to have power, yes, but it's not going to come from that source. It's going to come from the source of the presence of God that's in your community. Because if, can I just uh, share a thought? You, you mentioned the James chapter 3 passage. Yes. And I found this quite interesting that I only just noticed it. Uh, so he talks about the wisdom that is not from above and describes it as earthly, spiritual, and demonic. Yes. But what I find interesting is that then he characterizes this just with two things. The characteristic of this wisdom operating in the church is selfish ambition and... Um, uh, well, well, jealous and jealousy. Yeah. So these are not these are kind of not magical powers, but it just says these these are heavy disguise. Do you know what I mean? But yes. jealous, strong jealousy and selfish ambition operating in the church is actually not just what it appears to be. There's more to it. But there's more to it than that. Yes. Yeah. yeah very good. That it's a fascinating epistle, James. Absolutely fascinating. But it's interesting that he describes that the wisdom of the earth that, that shouldn't be here as demonic and then links in those characteristics. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, what do you think about Kabbalah? 
<laughs> what do I think about it? <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Okay. In oh. this in in this line. In. Yeah. Okay. How much time you got? <laughs> okay. So in a in a in a short way, the the what I find as I've lived here for twenty two years and I, and I've studied and I've studied diligently. Uh, okay, several times a, a, a week I, I, I get with guys and study and we pour over texts. Um, Modern-day Judaism is becoming more and more and more Kabbalistic. Totally, with the Zohar. And, oh. Zohar, they, they, it's, in, it's infecting everywhere. They, it's unbelievable and, it, and, and it's magic. It's, it's this magic again. It's, it's uh, magic incantations, magic spells, magic names of angels, uh, all kinds of things. They, they believe that the world is divided up into four realms and there are ten gates and each gate is guarded by angels and there's special mystic things you've got to do. The Torah that the we have is only a shadow of the real Torah that's in heaven and it's not... And, 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 <laughs> Everything's esoteric and it's incredibly Gnostic. They believe in reincarnation. And it just goes on and on and on. However, that's modern-day Judaism. Yeah. That is nothing to do with the Judaism of the Second Temple period. Uh, nothing at all. Absolutely. Absolutely, Absolutely. not. Nothing. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's, it's often a, a shame when people come to Israel and they look at the sort of modern Orthodox and they think, oh, this is just like what Jesus would have done. No, it's not. <laughs> there are a few hints, remezes, uh, signatures that, that still are there. But, but unfortunately, Kabbalah is, is infectious. It's Jewish mysticism and a fair chunk of it is Eastern. And, and they know it. This is the scary thing. They know it. And Revelation yet, addresses this. Sorry? Revelation, the book of Revelation, it speaks of this. Yeah. Revelation is a future-speaking book. It speaks of these kehilot of uh, Satan. Of yeah, it could be. It okay. could be. It could be. That's what they're referring mm. to. Um, and it's, it's so sad. It's, it's so really sad incredible. because. And right. it, it's sad because you know the Lord took them out of the east. Yeah. Brought them to the west. Brought them to Jerusalem, Abraham, and they still want to go back to the east with the eastern practices and. Yeah. Because we have a lot of. Yeah. It, it's, 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 it's attractive and it's the parties. It's a sod. You want to go deeper and more mystical. Yeah. yeah. It, maybe yeah. You would, a quick question, Aaron, like first Timothy four, one, like now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Like, mm -hmm. so you're saying that there's no, like, like people were possessed by demons in the new Testament. Right. And Jesus yeah. exercised them from people. So you're saying there's no, evil spirits like no it's not what i'm saying it's not what i'm saying at all they they're they still exist and they still have the ability to entice and they're still enticing and uh they've wrapped themselves in light and so in the in the modern period we we, we end up with a lot of witchcraft called the white magic although there are those that totally embrace dark magic too openly right um which is Kind of incredible, uh, and the and the the we don't see it as much in the West, but our brothers and sisters in Africa and places like Latin America and Brazil they do, and, right? Uh, and in, in the, the Democratic in the, Party, sorry, sir, nothing. I'm sorry.
What did you say, Roddy? What did he say? I missed it. <laughs> Doesn't matter. He yeah, said the Democratic idea. Party. Just to, <laughs> just, to off, just to finish off this little section on the things that we're not meant to do. So there is an acknowledgement that these powers do exist. There is this command of the Lord that we are not meant to have it. We are meant to be blameless. That is tamim, like the pure. We're meant to be pure. That includes our communities. Okay, we're, here we're talking about the people of Israel, but here we're also talking about us as well, that as followers of, of Messiah, Guth HaMashiach, we cannot allow this stuff to be part of our community. Okay, we must, we, must, we must make sure this is not part of it. We do have a power, but the power is the presence of God himself, in the form of the Holy Spirit, the Shekhinah that is present in our communities. And, um, and, uh, and the, the, the nations that... that as, as he says in, in verse 14, the nations that you're about to kick out, they listen to the fortune tellers and to the violence, but you, you are not going to do that. So he's actually setting up the next part of the talk. So he's discussed the magic, he's discussed the power that's there and uh, even resurrecting from the dead, the, red, red, the talking to the dead people. Um, the, the nations that you're about to go kick away, they also like to find out what's going on in the future. Everybody likes to know what's going on in the future. If I knew what numbers were going to come up in um, uh, the lottery, I'd buy a ticket too and uh, pay for my ministry and your ministry <laughs> and everybody else's ministry. But we're not supposed to. And so, but there is going to be a way. There is going to be a, a person who can tell the future and the things that are coming, and that is the prophet. And so on one level, there is this realm that we are not allowed to access. And on the other hand, there is this realm that we are allowed to. And it is in the realm of the prophet, who is also chosen by God. And we'll pick up that one uh, next week. Okay. All right. So we've discovered that the king is chosen by God. Priests are chosen by God. And next week, we're going to discover prophets are chosen by God. And there's this, and there's an interesting relationship that they all have. Okay, it's prophet, priest, and king in the community of uh, of, of God. So, um, okay, so just as we close, once again, I'd like to thank um, Tom and Christine for sending me uh, my cute little Bible, which I really enjoy. Now that I can fit it in my pocket, which means that when I journey to the Temple Mountain, they will never know that I have my Bible in, in, my, in my little pocket again. Um, and, uh, yes, and uh, currently it's just wrapped in brown leather, but eventually it's going to have um, uh, uh, probably some, some proper brown leather bar stools put on it when I finally get to Wadsworth. Is that right, Tom? You're going to, you're going to fix this up for me, mate? Yes, I'm Piece sure. Yeah, very good. So thank you very much, Christine. That's absolutely fantastic. And, uh, and, uh, and it's, it's a great little version, ESV. All right. So, brothers and sisters, have a great Shabbat, whatever you're doing. Um, we will be looking at the role of prophet. If anybody wants to read ahead and, uh, and um, prepare some questions for um, how do you recognize a prophet in our community? What really is a prophecy that we understand as a prophecy? How do you know that you're appointed by God to actually have that? Uh, particularly when that seems to be the, the, the gift that you all get, okay, um, later on. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, 
Let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.